Yes, sir. I just had the pleasure of viewing your video, and I want to congratulate you on your uh, extraordinary judgment and what you have uh, arrived at in terms of what my late wife, Cedar Lodge Tucker, was trying to do for the young people, for young black people of this nation. And you seem to have captured her spirit, her motives, and her intent, you have seen, you seem to have captured it to the T. And I want to congratulate you on your, well, on your apology and on your efforts to make America aware of what we were involved in and what we were trying to do to create a better future for the young people, for the young black people of America. Well, uh, thank you, sir. I'm beyond humbled. I, I have no words. I, I'm humbled. I'm beyond humble. So I, I do thank you. I'm glad um, it, it it struck a nerve in, in a positive way with you. So I'm eternally grateful. It was, you know, when the spirit moves you, the spirit moves you. Pardon? I said, when the spirit moves you, the spirit moves you. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I'm glad the spirit got to you and moved you because you, uh, you uh, presented the way I viewed you on the videos, do you relate to the young millennials who need to be related to and, and some of the older people who need to be reawakened as to what they did to some of the young people of this nation. And they need to be aware of the damage they have done because a lot of them profited for it, but we as a, a race, we did not profit. We lost severely. And we've lost too many of our young minds, great minds, to the trash heaps, trash heaps of history because of that gangster rap music they were listening to. And that's what my late wife was concerned about. And she literally gave her life for that cause because the day before she died in the hospital, she asked that two phones be brought into her room, her dying room, so that she could continue her fight against this sinister and degrading music that was destroying our young people. Well, can't it now I was I was a teenager back then and I didn't I couldn't grasp the whole scope of her movement. Um so so if you could um Give us insight. Um, what motivated her to do so? What was the end goal, the end result for her, and like the whatever trials and tribulations you guys went through? Because I I can imagine you guys caught a lot of heat and backlash for it. And I always felt you guys never had a chance to tell your side of the story properly and on on a proper format. Brother, you're you're quite accurate about that. Well, you know, she went. We suffered three lawsuits by the entertainment industry designed to shut her up. And of course, the, the more they tried to, the worse she got. Because there's one thing I can say about my late wife. I was married to her almost 57 years. And I never saw her wake. I never experienced her waking up in the morning express, expressing fear about anybody or anything. She was, she was the most fearless woman I have ever encountered in my life. Even though she was, I said that, not because she was my wife, because it's a fact. She did not fear anything or anybody. And that's why she took on the fight. She knew it was wrong. She knew what the consequences of it was going to be. And she was willing to, to dedicate her life to that, which she literally did. Because she died in the hospital room with gangster rap on her mind. And young people, she was concerned about young people, young black people of America. Let me, let me say something else. Sure, hold on. Slide? Yes. Yeah, one of the people we were trying to put, you know, because this is all spontaneous uh, tonight. And uh, one of the people who I mentioned to you that I wanted uh, to talk, you to meet and talk with um, is a guy named Kyle Morris, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, a year ago, uh, I was at a 
event at the African American Museum. Now, I work for a grant-funded program in the city of Philadelphia, and what I do uh, is um, we, we, we do a free business training program for business owners in Philadelphia. Now, for small business owners, okay? So with that, it's a free program. Philadelphia is 44% black. We got 2% of the businesses in the city that are black owned, which is crazy, okay? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't build this as a black initiative, but um, what we have is that because we have a population that's damn near half black, um, it was actually a really brilliant city councilwoman who's here in Philadelphia now. Um, you know, like a lot of cities, Philadelphia tried to get Amazon to come here, and they were ready to give them a billion dollars in taxes, you know, breaks and all those stuff. Same taxes now, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody down to these rich people, and they don't make them responsible for paying anything. And they underpay the employees, a lot of whom, you know, they can brag about how they got low unemployment for black people, but a lot of these jobs are unsustainable. You can't even afford to rent an apartment on minimum wage anywhere in the United States, okay? Mm-hmm. So anyway, they were going to do this thing with Amazon. We failed to get it in Philadelphia. And this woman named Sherelle Parker, who's a city council person here, said, what are we doing for the existing small businesses in the neighborhood? Now, when you drive through black neighborhoods, okay, you'll see some empty stores and you'll see uh, some national stores, little CBS or Walgreens or whatever. You'll see phone stores. And you'll see dialysis in, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the people struggling in these neighborhoods, the 2% of black-owned businesses that are operating in the city with 45% black population, okay? Um, what's happening now is with gentrification, these, I don't know where the hell they're coming from, but you got people buying up buildings, people, and even white people are getting kicked out of neighborhood stores. Like, I, you know... Because it's a city-funded program, I can't say I'm recruiting for black people, but we widely look at the underserved corridors, which often are black or brown or immigrant or whatever, okay? Mm-hmm. But white people are struggling with this too, all right? So the, a, a developer comes in, they buy a block of stores, okay? All of a sudden, everybody's rent goes up double or triple. So now what do you want to do? You know, you're out. So in the meantime, I'm recruiting for business owners, and I'm at the African American Museum, and the first table I walk up to, I started explaining, I'm doing this thing, it's free business training, we're giving people very high-level business training uh, to help them compete in the 21st century. And the, the brother that's there, he was, oh, listen, wow, that's amazing. He said, you sound like one of them do-good kind of people. I said, well, I said, I guess I got it on because my late aunt was C. Dolores Tucker. And I said, have you ever heard of her? Now, this is his response. What have I heard of her? He said, in 2005, I was on house arrest. He said, I was headed for jail. I was going to be a high school dropout. I was 15. And I got into the Martin Luther King Center Association program for College for Teens which was a, an initiative that my late aunt started for, for teens to get inner city youth in a college for summer to help them work on improving their grades, their SAT scores, all of that. So this boy at 15 said he got caught in this program when he had he was on house arrest with an ankle bracelet, right? Mm-hmm. He gets the program in 2005 in the summer. She died in October. He said that program turned my life around. Not only did I graduate from high school, but I went to college and got a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. He said, I now own a for-profit and non-profit company, and I'm working on my PhD. Wow. So I immediately called my uncle, now who, who lives in D.C. now, right? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I said, this guy is who we need to talk to. So that's who I'm trying to get to come on the program, all right, with us. Now, you know, this was spontaneous. Um, I, I showed my uncle and my cousin and my mom your video just tonight. We had dinner at my house. 
and we couldn't reach Kyle, but that's the third person I want you to be able to talk to. Okay. Because, you know, this is all about a progression of um, directing black people into greatness. Prior to, you know, her whole history and our whole history and every, you know, a lot of people's history in, in, in the whole civil rights thing has been a complete struggle. So to give you an analogy, if you are a student and you get into college, every credit card company is going to give you a credit card. It's so easy to dig the hole, but then try to get out of it. So what we're trying to do is get out of the hole, okay? And with that, with the civil rights movement, with all that stuff, when I when I was uh, secretary of the Commonwealth, one of the things she did is she appointed more women, more black, more everybody to judgeship and positions of power. When you walk through those halls before she was there, all you saw was pictures of whiteness. When she got there, she started putting people in place. Now, I'm going to tell you, I had a situation where I had to sue somebody, which I don't like doing, okay? And when I when I went to the mediator, they're like, oh, listen now, girl, you know, you got to understand that nobody really gets everything they want in the mediation, right? So I was suing a company I worked for that um, had done some, I mean, they basically denied me uh, rights after I had an injury at the job. So they're telling me now I got to accept 50% of the offer that my case is worth. And I said, let me tell you first part. First part, my job at this company was negotiating sales. And if I accepted 50% offer on what they were selling, I would have been fired, all right? So that is not even going to happen. And I said, part B of this is you judge, this is a white woman judge. I said, the only reason you're even sitting here is because my aunt put you in this job, mm. okay? So uh, guess what? And she was like, who's your aunt? I said, see Dolores Tucker. And she had to, like, choke. She was like, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, my negotiation was like, I get what I want. And I got it, all right? Now... I mean, I don't want to get too far off the track, but we got a current president in office, and he's an idiot and a, anyway, he's a criminal. And what they are doing, no, the Republicans don't even like him, okay? But what they are doing while he's there is that he's such a distraction that they're allowing them to be able to appoint judges and things like that for lifetime positions that will continue to affect everything that we do for 30 years. Yeah, that's my mom in the background, okay? So we, we, we just, you know, it, it, the, I get challenged because there's so many layers to this mm-hmm. that all of that's in my head because I see it all. But to do it in a conversation and in a meme and in a Facebook post and in a YouTube video, it's, very, it's a very short avenue for for disseminating information mm-hmm. and us have been reconditioned in the 21st century to not want to know the details okay so without knowing the details we come to faulty confusion uh, conclusions right mm-hmm. uh, basically there are layers to this that go beyond that but what she saw when she heard that music is that after spending years and decades and energy on creating a narrative that black people are one talented two skilled and qualified to do things all of a sudden we're calling each other n-words these and hoes and gangsters you know and she also saw that this was created music is powerful it creates not only a local narrative but a narrative that has been sold worldwide now, I've lived in the U.S., I've lived in the Caribbean, I've lived in Miami and D.C. and Philly and some other places, right? Mm-hmm. But look at music everywhere. You know, Japanese people are doing rap music, okay? McDonald's commercial is rap music. We are so talented as a race and so powerful that even when they suppress us, we dominate their, their entire culture. You see it, right? Yes, ma'am. You see it. They took music out of the school. 
school, which is what led to the development of people who don't sing or play instruments becoming musicians. And that's how powerful we are. That even if you take away the education of it, we still invent something that you copy and steal and try to make your own. I mean, it, it's mind-blowing. I'll watch movies where you don't see a black face in the movie, but then they got Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson and Biggie and everybody else in the musical narrative of the film. But you won't see a single one of us. That is true. That repeatedly. Mm-hmm. It, ma- it makes me ill. It may, every commercial, I mean, look around, it's everywhere. We dominate the culture, but we get no credit for it. And, and I mean, that, that thing with, what was that movie? That last one in the, in the, in the Rocky series? Dude goes to the, to the Golden Globe. He forgets to thank the director and his co-star? Are you serious? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I mean, it's pervasive and it continues. Because we keep allowing these narratives that say that we are less than, and we are not less than. We are it. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. No, you're good. Can you, um, for you, how was it growing up during that time? Um, Because like I said, I was a teenager, and the the one thing that I remember um, above anything else was the steamroller and just rolling over the tapes. And, you know, the, the, the media crafted one narrative. Of course, I'm not wise enough to understand there's, there's levels to it. But for you, during, when, it, when it got hot, how, how was it for you and how did you handle it? Well, there's, there's a few things. There, yeah, my mom's saying this. I was busy all the time. Um, our, our family, see Dolores Tucker was my grandmother's sister. I said that in the comment I made on the YouTube thing. Mm-hmm. And and my my great grandparents were business people and they were immigrants from the Bahamas. And there were there were fourteen of them. Oh wow. Okay? And they landed in Philly. Um and they were business people at yes, yeah, several stops, but they landed in Philly. And although we were here and, you know, people look at you and they see you as black, we were, we had a mindset that was a little different, probably. Yeah, and I, I will say this, we live in a city, in the part, well, not the part of the city, Philadelphia, Mount Airy, the section of the city. Um, but, well, okay, that was before me, Mom. I, I was in the Mount Airy part. So, Mount Airy, starting in the 50s and 60s has a late 50s and 60s, became the most successfully integrated neighborhood in the United States, okay? Mm-hmm. So when you look at the list of people who lived here, they were Tuskegee Airmen, you know, they were um, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, teachers, educators, uh, business people, whatever, you know? Um, there's a national company now called the Pyramid Club that's a white thing, but the original Pyramid Club started in Philadelphia in the hood in North Philly, but it was populated by black people who were all professionals. They went to HBCUs. Um, you know, they emigrated here from the south to North Philly, and then they came to Mount Airy. So now Mount Airy today is about 65% black. And um, with that, you know, these, these we live in gigantic ridiculous stone houses okay single single houses they're not grow homes lots of trees lots of all that and um if you look up mount airy philadelphia usa there's a wikipedia article about it mm-hmm. and it'll give you a list of judges and doctors and this and that you know grover washington lives here i mean this was this was that place all right okay so
uh, my aunt did a, a tribute to Rosa Parks um, at, the, at the Kennedy Center in D.C. And during those years, a lot of times I was responsible for logistics for Rosa Parks. So, you know, when we would go to an event, I was in the car with her, but then I would be the one to say, I'm sorry, no more autographs, you have to make it to the next thing. And I would, I would be the one to tell people no, so she could always be saying yes, you know. So we would usher her to the next location. So, I mean, I grew up in that area. Um, I was clearly aware that the rest of the United States wasn't like that. I was also clearly aware that it wasn't like that outside of my neighborhood, you know. When I was a teenager... If, I, if Philly is known for its neighborhoods, and a lot of them are white ethnic neighborhoods, so if you go in neighborhoods, it when in my day, my teenage days, and I saw a lot of flag, U.S. flags hanging out people's doors, I know that I was going to get my butt kicked if I didn't get out of there. Mm-hmm. Like ethnic white neighborhoods, Irish, Italian, whatever. Now today, those neighborhoods are further integrated by a lot of immigrants from Asia, Europe, you know, wherever the hell, Russia. Uh, you know, there's, in my job doing what I do, like the part of Philly that used to be heavily white ethnic, Irish, Polish, blah, blah, blah. Today, I walk down three blocks of commercial corridor and nobody spoke the same foreign language as the as first language. It, it, it's so integrated now with immigrants that even the original white Jewish or Polish people that were there, they can't take it, you know? So everything's changing due to one, gentrification, and two, immigration. So, you know, it it is what it is, but I see it really clearly because in the job that I do now, I go to every neighborhood of the city. But, um... As far as the gangster rap thing, you know, Monty first discovered it. It was during a Christmas dinner when one of my cousins, who's now in his 40s, he got this uh, album, it was a Snoop album. And she was like, what? I mean, because, yeah. No, the album, it was an album, not a CD. So when you opened it, it was like a picture of the last supper, supper paradise. You know, and then the lyrics were written down there. She immediately went on the warpath with that, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Seth Street already existed. So the idea that music, there, in fact, there was a DJ here, Doug Henderson, Jocko. He was like a 50s DJ. And if you if you look him up on YouTube, um, he started using language back in the 50s. And he started, he really started this concept understanding how music works on your mind you know you can listen to music and learn lyrics without even trying okay Mm -hmm. so he was one of those early people that said why don't we use this for education now his son is still here still works in radio jocko henderson was a a famous dj in the 50s lived around the corner from here yeah he, he really was like in the 50s the 50s version of rap was was about education a lot and it was radio you know against us, they poisoned our minds, 
they put the money out there and a lot of people went for it and sold us out and still doing it. You're right. You know, all this, I mean, anyway, you, you can see I get really caught up. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. Um, during that time from which you can remember, did she have people that kind of distance her them, themselves from her because of whatever pending uh, backlash she was facing at the time? Let me let my uncle answer that part. Okay. <laughs> yes. All of your so-called national black leaders, all of them are trying to avoid her because they did not want to be seen talking or communicating to her because they did not want the entertainment industry to deprive them of the clothes that they were getting from the entertainment industry. Wow. Okay. Wow. The entertainment industry called my wife, late wife, down to the Watergate Hotel. I don't know whether you know what the Watergate Hotel. I've heard of it. Yes, sir. In Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. They called her to the Watergate Hotel. It was about seven of them industry people and ask her what she wanted to stop her crusade against them because as one uh, executive said to her you know you are interfering with billions of dollars of in, in money for what you're doing and they wanted to know what she wanted to stop and she said i don't want anything from me all i want you to do is to stop the music that was her response to them I want to make it clear. She wasn't against the format of the music. No. She was against the lyrics that disparage black people. Yeah, and of course, this is something that very few people are aware of. In fact, the public is, has no awareness, but it can be confirmed. If you ever have a chance to talk to Suge Knight, and I know you know who Suge Knight is. Yes, sir. She had a good relationship with Suge Knight. And, that's, and I know you would say, well, how could that be? That's not what the press said. But if you ever talked to Suge Knight, he's still living. He would say that see the Lawrence Tucker was a woman that he respected, that he admired, and he treated her like he would treat his own mother. That's the kind of relationship she had with Suge Knight. And he was, he was in, in the business of trying to change his music. She told him, keep the beat. But stop the lyrics. And he said, I can do that. Wow, I never would have known that. And, and when Suge Knight was sentenced, the first time he was convicted in uh, Los Angeles, the judge asked him, that, Mr. Knight, is there anyone you would want to speak to before you, uh, before you have to be discharged from the courtroom? He said, yes, I would like to speak to Mr. Steve Lars Tucker. That was the request that Suge Knight made before he was sent to jail. And if you ever talk to him, he will confirm that. And he told his boys, he said, you treat her with respect. His gang was there in the courtroom, and she went outside and had a meeting with his gang. Wow. The most notorious gang in in, in L.A., and she was standing right in the middle of them. And they, and they respected her because Suge Knight had told them to respect her. So if you don't mind, um, how was it for you during that time? How, how were you dealing with it emotionally, spiritually? Um... Well, it wasn't a problem for me. Uh, and I guess uh, the good Lord prepared me for that. Long before I ever met her, um, my I had a father who told me when I was a little boy, he said, son, be careful who you give your name to. So one day I finally asked him, well, daddy, why do you keep saying, be careful who you give your name to? And he said to me, any woman that you ever give your name to, you need to be prepared to defend her honor with your life if necessary. So that was always my attitude. I was always willing to give my life to defend the honor of my wife if necessary. And, and he ain't kidding about that. I mean, we 
and that's always been that's always been one of my primary principles of life. So therefore, it never bothered me one iota. I, I supported her morning, noon, and night, and was always ready. And as I said at her funeral, I never thought I would be standing before her funeral. I thought she would be standing before mine because I was always ready to give my life to defend her honor. Okay. If somebody steps my other wrong way, oh, it be watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's my response to your question on that, sir. Um, so I know you guys are, are busy with MLK, MLK weekend, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Coming up Monday, but Kenny wanted me to talk to you because I just came in town last night. I should have been here earlier, uh, but uh, I I appreciate. I told her I wanted to see your video and talk to you because I appreciated so much your observation and to know that I have lived long enough to witness it in person. Is a real honor and a privilege and a tribute. Now that means a lot to me. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, any any final thoughts that you want people to know to take away from 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 your wife, your late wife? No, she was a woman who, without who was fearless and who was uncompromising in advancing the interest and the the interest of black people in America. She was dedicated to that proposition of advancing black people, the interest of black people in America, because we have been shortchanged in so many respects and that she felt that we needed to make up for that. And we didn't have, we did not need anyone using that, using any issue to sidetrack the interest of our interest in America. Okay, awesome. That's so good, but she was dedicated to the proposition that black people had been shortchanged in America and that we needed to make up for it some way, somehow. Um, final question. Do you believe yeah. she, she would do it all over again the same way, or do you think she would, would have changed some things up if she had to do she it again? Change a single thing. There's nothing she could have changed to have gained the support of people because most people, the entertainment industry had millions of dollars to uh, to sidetrack the issue and to create other issues instead of the main issue was the, the music they, they, they were producing because they were making millions of dollars of what they were doing. And she would not have changed anything, sir. Because that was the kind of woman she was. Yes, ma'am. You know, I'm a generation right before that. I mean, I grew up with like Earth, Wind, and Fire, talking about positivity. Mm -hmm. You know, outstanding. You know, that's the music I came with, and um, to have it switch like that was like, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. You know, like what the hell is that? You know, I know even with things like um, and Phyllis uh, Hyman, for instance. I loved her voice, loved her music. She was a person who lived in Philadelphia, beautiful voice. And her her lyrics, a beautiful woman, true. But her lyrics were always based on deprivation. I'm nothing without a man. I ain't got no man. You know, it was too depressing. I bought one CD of hers, and when I listened to it, I was like, eh, can't do this. You know, because that can't be my narrative. Gotcha. Right? Uh-huh. Tracy Chapman. You know, I love the sound of Tracy Chapman. She was all new when that came out. And then I bought the CD and when I read what those lyrics were, her life was very, you know, her songs were about a decrepit life. I gave that thing away immediately because the narrative of my life and the music I have to listen to, it either has to have no words or it has to have words about positivity because first of all, we know as black people that this world isn't really supportive of us. So I'm not going to want to listen to anything that gives me one moment of negativity. Not going to do it. I get up in the morning and I got to have something going positive in my head because I know what I have to face every day at work. Mm -hmm. All right. And 
I think that's the attitude that I grew up with. It's like, man, don't let these people turn your head into something negative. You know? Or, and, and even, you know, the TV shows. Almost all, all the shows are cop shows and, you know, death and, and destruction and this. And a lot of our shows that we celebrate, scandal, really? That's the way you want to frame your life? You want to have that narrative in your head? I, you know, one of the things I used to sell back in the day is I worked for jewelry people and I sold engagement rings, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have people that come in at the happiest moment of their life to buy an engagement ring. But then you're going to listen to all that crap music and all that negativity, really? And start doing this display of whatever. I had a guy that came to me one time, a black guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was with his fiance and he was looking sour and here I was thinking wow he is the wrong dude to marry she went up to the ladies room and then he explained to me that he had bought her a ring for four thousand dollars a few months ago and you know with her little tv scandal housewives whatever drama thing she did she threw it down the sewer so he I, I was thinking she was the pious nice girl she was like I don't want to spend too much. You know, I want to spend like a few hundred dollars, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, and he's sitting there looking like a sourpuss. But she had thrown away an uninsured $4,000 ring that he saved his coin for. The fact that he even came back to buy another one, I was like, oh, my gosh. Wow. You know, but we're hearing narratives that are wrong. And whether it's, you know, whether it's man, woman, or whether it's black, and where N words, these are hoes, you can't have those narratives in your head and think that your life is going to work. That's uh, I'm, I'm we're in alignment. I, I, I totally agree. Um, wow, a lot of a lot of stuff that you gave me a lot of stuff to think about, um, in retrospect, and I and I'm humbled beyond measure. And um, and I, I'm saying again, you know, my whole family that has sat here, it was just me and three others tonight but we are absolutely in gratitude of the fact that you came out with this you know when i saw it, and i i don't know what i was looking for the other day but you know i was looking for something and i was looking for D, and then then i saw yours and i was like we owe her an apology what is this about and i was like oh my gosh y'all gotta hear this <laughs> <laughs> i is the man okay yes sir I noticed you were riding in a car when you were making those observations. Yes, sir, I was. What, what, what gave rise to your, those observations while you were riding in a car? Honestly, it l- literally just came to me right then and there. I didn't have any, um, I didn't watch any old news footage or anything. It just came to me, literally. I, I can't take credit for it. Um, I give it to a higher power, but it was literally just on the way to work. And it just, it dawned on me to, to say something about it, so. And then plus, I, I always felt that she never got a fair shake during the whole time. Because like I said, I was I was a teenager then and I couldn't understand that the layers and all the, the politics behind it. And I, I never I couldn't figure out I couldn't find anything as to her explaining her side of the story or anything of that nature, anything that that uh, put her in a positive light. There's always such a negative uh, uh, attachment to it. So right. the media found all of that out. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the entertainment industry spent millions of dollars trying to make it a one-sided affair. You know, they misrepresented everything about her. But if you ever get a chance to talk to Shook Knight, I wish you would do it, and you can get the real story, because it was it's totally different. She was not against them. She just wanted them to change the lyrics. She told Shook Knight, the beat is great. Don't change the beat, but you can change the lyrics. And Shook Knight agreed with her. He said, give me some time I have to work it out with some of my artists and everything and, and some of the people who were behind him. And if you find out, if you do a little digging, you'll find out the attorney that was a lawyer who owned Death Row and was making him do the stuff that he was doing. And they turned and they, and they turned on Shook Knight. The full story of all that has yet to be told. Yeah, I, I know of his, who his attorney was, David Kenner, at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. David Kenner, and he was he was the one behind all of that mess. He would not let Shug Knight change anything, 
and he was responsible for three lawsuits being brought against my wife to try to stop her because they figured they could intimidate her. But they didn't know that there was nobody, there was no force that could intimidate Cedar Lodge Tucker on the planet. Wow. They tried everything. They had investigators going around the country trying to find dirt on me. They would they came to Philadelphia and went to every bar in Philadelphia and said, Well, who does he come in here with? But what they didn't know, I don't attend. I've never gone in any bars in Philadelphia unless I was with my wife and she was uh going in there to speak against something, you know, for something or or campaigning for someone. You know, they but they didn't know that. So they just thought that they could dig up a lot of dirt and shut her up. Mm -hmm. They had two two of the best in, best in investigators in the country. I, I guys that were working for on on Clinton at one time. And they, they were working on me all over the country trying to find dirt. And they to bring up a deposition. My wife had to go through seventeen depositions. That's a story that nobody knows that's ever been told. Seventeen depositions trying to break her. Wow. Um I'm thank you for telling me all this. I we would have never have known had had uh it's just a, maybe maybe as, as time develops we'll have a chance to explore and and you you are a young man and you have a strong voice and uh you am, I was impressed deeply by listening to you and the observations you made. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to, to to talk with you guys again. Definitely, I hope to keep this thing going. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, and you're in, where are you? I'm out. I'm outside of Chicago. Oh yeah, yes, sir. very good. Well, anyway, maybe well the, the time will come where we'll be able to meet in person and maybe do some things because I believe. With your with your approach, and you were you were there, you were part of, it, and you could you could address it much more than I could ever address it because they would say I have a self interest involved. Oh yes, sir. I would love to. Definitely, definitely. Yes. So uh, anyway, I'll uh, let I'll turn you back to Kitty. Okay. And uh, the next year, next year, uh, before the. Every holiday, every Martin Luther King holiday, Mrs. Coretta Scott King asked my late wife, Cedar Lodge Tucker, to establish an organization in Philadelphia that would uh, arrange for the ringing of the Liberty Bell to inaugurate the King holiday. And that's what uh, we do now. Since, since they asked me to take it over when she died, okay. and I have to take it over, and we will be having a celebration at the Liberty Bell Monday to inaugurate the King holiday. And we do that every day of every Martin Luther King holiday. That's what we do. That's awesome. Uh, wow. Night. I'm sh wow. So forward to this interacting. And maybe next year you'll be here to celebrate with us. It's a date. All right. Hold on a moment. Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad we uh, made the connection, and I'd like to keep it going if we can. Definitely. Oh, by by all means, I, I plan on keeping in touch with you guys, and definitely whenever you guys uh, feel like you you guys want to say something, I'm here to listen. Yeah, and and my other question is, you know, what we had talked about is possibly doing, uh, I, I guess, a webinar with you. Yeah, we could uh, do a video chat, or if, if worst case, if we can't, we you just call in. We'll do it that way. Whatever is uh, best for you guys, I'll accommodate. I'd really also like you to have the perspective of somebody like Kyle Morris, who was a kid, you know, yeah, and had the the um, this this situation. You know, my idea uh, started this college for teens idea. Now it's starting to become a common idea. But when she came up with it, she was like, well, yeah, in 2000, she was like, let's get some let's get some kids in inner city who never have an an, an a chance to see a college, to have time on an actual college. And she partnered with some HBCUs like Cheney to create a an experience
kids to actually stay on a campus in a college for six weeks during the summer when school was not in session. And then also the program went year round. So the, the, the luncheon that we have every year is actually the major fundraising activity for that. Um, one of the things that, um, that I've been saying is that, you know, the approach now in the 21st century needs to change a bit mm-hmm. um, doing this because we, we desperately need this outreach still. You know, if you look around every city, Chicago, Philly, you know, Miami, L.A., New Orleans, wherever, wherever city, you can see it. I mean, this whole gentrification thing is moving us out rapidly. You know, they don't pay enough. They, you know, they're, they're working on artificial intelligence and robotics. They're trying to replace white people in jobs. And white people don't even get it, okay? And they're the next. I mean, this is the funny thing, too, because... I went to a, 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 do you know who Noam Chomsky is? Yes, I do. Okay, so I didn't know this until recently, but I went to the same elementary school as Noam Chomsky. Now, he's like my grandmother's age, he's 90-something, but he is a linguist and a radical progressive, and he does not like the way authority manages humanity, basically. And a lot of my narrative, I went to the same elementary school as him, Right. Never met him. Don't know him. But, you know, I've been reading. I, I always listen to him and I've been reading his works for years. And and basically, the United States is really more of an oligarchy and it is no longer working on supporting the concept of a middle class or the needs of individuals. And and we are the first black people we're the first ones to get plowed under the change okay mm-hmm. and you know okay so the, the school that i went to the elementary school i went to that Noam chomsky also went to was it's a it's a non-religious but jewish elementary school okay mm-hmm. it was like I, there were two me and this other dude we we're only black people in the, in the school in the class not in the school my cousin, a couple of my cousins are there too. But anyway, what ended up happening is, first of all, when I was going to school there, Jewish people absolutely knew that they were not white. All right? Mm-hmm. What Jewish people think they're white. Now, if you look up, if you ever looked up uh, Ben Franklin, Swarthy German, look that up on Google. I remember reading that as a, yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember okay. that, yep. The real definition of who is white by persons who are white supremacists means that you are from England and you're Protestant. Everybody else is non-white. Now, what changed is in the mid-1900s, when the count changed on the majority of who is white in the U.S., they started including Irish, French, Italian, Jews, Germans. Because they didn't want the narrative of the United States being white to change to it being non-white. So they don't consider those people white. Right. Okay? It's temporary, giving them a little holding place. You know who Tim Wise is? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, okay. So he, he talks about that, too. White people didn't love each other in Europe. Okay? They abused and discriminated against their own people and it's true white supremacists get it people who have been sort of pulled into the fold temporarily they think they're white but and i'm gonna tell you this you know i've been wondering about the push for all this ancestry dna blah 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 stuff right Mm -hmm. finally occurred to me they already know who we are that are black, brown, Indian, Mexican. They know who we are. That's not who they're looking for. Because true white supremacists do not consider all these other ethnic whites, which means non-white, to be white. They're getting those records together so that when they get rid of, if they successfully get rid of the actual non-white people that they've identified as non-white mm-hmm. and also 
then go after the next one. Now, if you go back to Nazi times, right, there was a, a, a he was actually a Protestant pastor named Martin Neumolder, Moeller, right? Mm -hmm. And he was the one that wrote that thing, First They Came For. Have you ever seen that? I've, yes, I've heard of it, yes. Okay, so First They Came For. That's the narrative, you know? And where you see it, on one hand, we see, yeah, they're shooting a lot of black people, the police, and this, that, and the other, and they're locking us up, and this, that, and the other. But then when you look at the other thing, the way that our food and water and air and pollution is corrupting the planet, okay? They don't just do that to black people. They do that to everybody. All that McDonald's and crap that people eat, like, I don't go and change food restaurants ever, okay? All that crap is causing people to have cancer, diabetes, high cholesterol, early death, all of that, okay? You got an opioid crisis here. That's a white thing. One of my friends is black. She actually works for one of the big pharma companies, right? Mm -hmm. Now, her education, I'm not going to name her and I'm not going to name the company, but her education puts her, she's a very high-level executive in one of these companies. That's why I'm not going to name her. But um, her position, first of all, her education doesn't allow her to see things the way I see them. She became a medical doctor based on the fact that she, as a child, watched people in her family die. But her education came through traditional medical channels. Okay. Mm -hmm. So therefore, she's absolutely sincere in her desire to help people, but she is clueless about the nature of our food system. She asked me one time, and this is like, like five years ago, did you know that soda was bad for you? Huh? What? I've been drinking soda 20 years ago. Okay. Did I know it was bad for me? It's water, sugar, and chemicals. What is it other than bad for you? It has zero nutritional content. Mm -hmm. Right. She's a medical professional, and I'm not. And I knew that years ago. So, you know, oh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's the first they came for. That's what I'm saying. I'm writing this. We as black people catch the brunt of it early, and that does two things. One, it allows people who are also, like Tim Wise says, not liked. It allows them to feel superior when they aren't liked either. And it's not to say that race is a false concept. It's a false concept, but it's a construct that has a reality that exists in our world. Are you fucking on a fan? Yes, ma'am. I'm, 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 we're on alignment. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times when you tell people it's a false construct, they believe that you're saying that it's fake. It's real. The construction of it is false. Mm. But the narrative and the execution of it is real. We are actually being victimized by racism almost constantly as black people. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the construct of it is based on a false premise. So it's not diminishing the fact that it exists, but it also allows people who are less able to grasp it to not realize, especially white people, that mm -hmm. they are victims of it too. Mm -hmm. That they're being, they are being crushed, destroyed. Oh, oh, oh here. okay. Here's two things. Two things real quick. One, I work in business consulting, right? So when you define what a small business is in the USA, if you look it up, it says businesses with 500 employees and revenues between 7.5 and $10 million. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's small business, right? Mm -hmm. When you look at companies that actually have 500 employees and more than $7.5 million, that represents the top 5% of small businesses. 
95% have nine employees or less. And they're like in a couple hundred thousand in revenue. Mm-hmm. That 5% allows people to perpetuate a lie. And I'm going to break that down in another sense. There's another video on YouTube that says the hilarious way that Republicans define middle class. And I think the Young Turks. So what they have discovered is that the narrative on what middle to low income is in the United States, according to the Republican Senate currently, is the way they framed it. It means people who are earning $450,000 or more a year. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the median income in the U.S. is $59,000 a year in the whole U.S. Chile is $39,000. We're like broke in this. This is the, this is the biggest poor city. So, so the actual number, $450,000, that's actually the half of 1%. Not even the 1%. Okay. But frame the narrative to say that that's included, then you can do a tax break for middle to low income that benefits the half of 1%. Gotcha. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you and me are saying, oh, they're doing breaks for middle to low income, but they're not. They're doing it for the half of 1%, for the $400,000 income. When they're doing programs for small business owners, you're thinking, oh, this is the mom and pop shop that I use around the corner. But no, mm-hmm. you're looking at people with 500 employees or more. Okay. So what we have here is they keep framing things with language that is not accurate, which allows them to say things to our face that we hear one way and they're interpreting another way. Now that narrative is against the majority of people that live in the U.S. of any race. Mm -hmm. As black people, we're often at the lowest rungs of that, so we get stepped on and crushed the hardest. That's true. The hardest. Right. Right. So anyway, that's my analysis. Okay. Well, I appreciate um, your time, both of you guys. Thank you so much. I know you guys got a busy weekend ahead of you, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, if you want to do me a favor, when you get a chance, if you want to send me uh, Kyle Morris's email so I can reach out to him or his number, however you see fit, and I could set up a, a time with him to, to speak with him. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'll do that. We couldn't reach Kyle tonight, so this, this all came up spontaneously. But, um, yeah, I definitely want to connect you with Kyle. Okay. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll do that one-on-one, but, yeah, but, and, and, and then I'm hoping, fly that we can continue this beyond now. I mean, I, I was excited to connect everybody because we're right at the cusp of this. If, if we had more time, maybe you could actually come, you know, sort of thing. But we'll, we'll, we're up on things, hopefully. Well, well, we'll get it worked out. I'll definitely, uh, I have no, I, I love traveling, so I'll definitely love to be back on the East Coast uh, pretty soon. So, yeah, it won't be an issue. Yeah, and I want to again thank you again for all of us from the bottom of our hearts on you speaking out on this because you know it, it never did go away you know it was always there right okay yeah I'm just, I'm just happy you guys had time for me i'm just doing my part i'm just here to do my part I'm gonna... yeah and that, that's all do is everybody picks their piece and does their part you know and it that's what it takes it takes teams of us mm-hmm. okay yeah all right so nice talking with you and you take care same here you too thank you bye-bye all right, bye Yo, so that was uh, the late um, C. Dolores Tucker, great niece, and her 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 late husband or her husband, and uh, so it was spontaneous. I've been working on this with them for the last two three weeks, and we're just trying to nail down a, a time. And I just happened to have time for them today, so I, I you know I, I did what I could to get them in. So I definitely will. Uh, these gonna be my new best friends from Philly. So I will be in Philly soon, Obsidian. I'll be looking for you too, nigga. <laughs> so yeah, um, I'm gonna chop this up. Um, like the, the all the stuff about um, the the connection with Suge Knight and C. Dolores Tucker. I'll chop that up and make it its own separate video just for that.
for for the for people that's just interested in that part of the of the, of the stream. So I'll definitely do that. So just give me a couple of days. I'll get it stitched, stitched together for everybody. And um, so thank everybody for spending out time with me again. Back to back streams. It was it's totally impromptu. So uh, X, I see you in the building, brother. Um, Genesis and Renzo, um, Cali. So I, I thank you guys. Where you at, Dinah? Dinah's always here. Uh, Renzo, I got you. Okay, so I'm gonna get out of here. I got prep work to do. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the stream. And like I said, give me a couple of days. I'll stitch the death row part, the Suge Knight, see the Lord's uh, talk connection together, but in his own separate video. So you guys enjoy the rest of your night. I'm gonna try and get some work done, and uh, I'll catch you guys later. All right, peace. <laughs>